Hello and welcome back to Panam, a podcast about Paris, the overlooked or unloved, or in the words of Sarah, a listener who I met at a comedy show, the lightly macabre. It is autumn in Paris, the best time of year if you ask me. The leaves are turning lovely colours, but the sun is still shining. Now we've just had Halloween, which is not a huge holiday here in Paris, but I love it because I love any excuse to dress up. And maybe that is what has inspired this episode. So come with me and find out about Napoleon's wig, which he wears not just for Halloween, but all year round. So we're here in the first arrondissement, just by the colonnade of the Louvre. It is a gorgeous sunny day. There are people, you might be able to hear buses and even some music because there's always musicians playing in the Louvre courtyard. And the colonnade, if you want to imagine it, it's the eastmost facade of the Louvre. So that's a bit the furthest away from the Tuileries. It's opposite the Saint-Germain-Luxorois, which I can see right now, which of course is very important for the Louvre's history. Uh, if you know about the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Um, it's just next to a lovely cafe called the Fumois you can go for a cup of tea when you've finished but yes we are here at the east entrance to learn a little bit about its history so why don't we start at the very beginning of the Louvre so when the Louvre was first built at the end of the 12th century Philip Auguste was building a fortress to protect Paris from the English no less now gradually over the centuries, it was enlarged and transformed into a sumptuous residence fit for a king. The palace underwent some of its most important modifications during the reign of Louis XIV, the Sun King. He decided to have a huge facade built on the east side, precisely on the side where the sun rises, because branding is everything. Now, he wanted it to be the main entrance to the palace, and so the architecture and decoration needed to be suitably grandiose. Louis XIV was very particular, however, and between 1661 and 1664, a number of projects were studied, but all were rejected. So finally, in 1665, the king called on the great Italian artist and architect Bernini to come over from Italy and design this all-important entrance. Bernini had made a name for himself in Italy, working on both religious and secular buildings, but amongst his most well-known works are the Piazza San Pietro, or St Peter's Square, and the Piazza and Colonnades in front of St Peter's Basilica. But despite his sterling reputation, the plans that Bernini designed were not to the young king's liking. But in order not to offend this immense artist, admired throughout Europe and favoured by the popes, who of course are very important, they made a somewhat symbolic gesture and they laid the first stone of the facade that he had imagined in 1665. Then Bernini was kindly sent home, showered with honours and money, and his design discreetly binned. Louis then turned to architect Claude Perrault, who, as a side note, was the brother of Charles Perrault, who was famous for publishing a collection of fairy tales that he had adapted, and these included hits such as The Little Red Riding Hood, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty and 
Bluebeard. Some of his versions even influenced the brothers Grimm, who published their famous collection more than a hundred years later. But let's get back to Claude, the architect. Now, he designed a huge colonnade for the entrance. I think we say colonnade in English. It's actually a bit more complex and there were quite a lot of architects which were involved and had their say and things went back and forth so it's not a hundred percent Perrault's vision but today it's nonetheless known as Perrault's colonnade and I'm just going to spare you all of that architecture back and forth. So the east entrance is shaping up. There's an impressive row of pillars in the making and in the centre of the façade, an enormous door was installed so that the king's entrance could be made with great pomp and ceremony, which is exactly what he liked. But the mercurial monarch once again changed his mind, deciding to leave the Louvre unfinished and move to the Chateau of Versailles, which he judged to be more suited to the grandeur of his court and his reign. So the façade of the central pavilion of the Louvre colonnade remained smooth until, more than a hundred years later, in 1808, the sculptor François Lumeau was asked to decorate the top of the entrance with a superb pediment to the glory of the current bigwig, that's right, Napoleon I. Because, as I'm sure you know, listener, by this time the monarchy was no more and the empire was firmly in place. A bust of Napoleon was thus made. It represented the great man surrounded by goddesses and muses from Greek mythology. And just another side note, the word muse is where we get the word museum from. So how's that for a little bit of etymological foreshadowing? However... When the monarch returned to power in 1814, after Bonaparte was vanquished, Louis XVIII, now king, demanded that all traces of the empire and the wicked Napoleon be removed from French monuments. Now, that's easy to say, but pretty complicated, certainly at times, to do. So, to satisfy the royal demand, sculptures were sent away and road names changed, but not all of them were so easily dispatched. Louis XVIII had the pediment of the Louvre colonnade in his sights and demanded that the imperial bust be decapitated. Ah, the irony. He would not have Bonaparte looking down upon him a moment longer. The architects, however, were dismayed. This work was just so recently finished and was now going to be ruined, so they proposed a solution that would avoid breaking the harmony of the sculpture d'ensemble. They managed to convince the sovereign that it was enough to add a stone wig to Napoleon's head and then chisel Ludovico Magno, Louis the Great, underneath in order to transform Napoleon into Louis XIV, promising the king, in the words of that viral TikTok sound, that nobody's gonna know. To which Louis probably replied, they're gonna know. And the architects reassured him, saying, how are they gonna know? I'll tell you how they'll know. Because although the king may have been satisfied with the disguise and returned his attention to the restoration of monarchic power, he failed to notice the right-hand shield held by Athena, goddess of war and wisdom, which was decorated with 12 bees and an eagle, symbols of the reign of Napoleon. The question then is, did they not notice these? Were they deliberately overlooked or was it just impossible to disguise them? Who can say? Now, it's not actually until this moment that I've ever really wondered why Napoleon has a bee as a symbol. I've known it was his symbol for ages. But why? Well, 
needless to say, I had to investigate. So I'm sorry, I'm going to take you down a rabbit hole, or should I say, into a beehive, as we take a quick detour into the emblems of empire. First, the bee. Now, apparently, it was after much consideration that Napoleon chose the bee as the emblem to represent his status as emperor, and it was a motif which is rich in meaning. Due to its industrious habits, the bee has come to symbolise hard work, diligence, industriousness and orderliness. But because it also makes honey, the bee also symbolises sweetness and benevolence. Now, the bee has also long been a symbol of the Christian church and has been adopted by some saints. And according to legend, the bee also never sleeps, so it has also come to represent vigilance and zeal. All of these attributes Napoleon was happy to own. But in seeking an appropriate emblem for himself, Napoleon had also looked to one of his great heroes, the Emperor Charlemagne, who had adopted the cicada as his emblem. Now, Napoleon may have mistaken its outline for that of a bee and thought to himself, if it's good enough for Charlemagne, well, it's good enough for him. Regardless, that is why he has a bee. Now, the next symbol is the eagle, which is a lot easier to understand. It feels a lot more in line with the posturing macho-ness of emperors. There was initially some debate about which animal or manly symbol would best represent the empire. In the running, there was a lion, an elephant, an oak tree, and they even toyed with keeping the fleur-de-lis. Ultimately, Napoleon chose the eagle due to its links with imperial Rome and military victory. Napoleon's eagle can be recognised as it should be gold with its wings open and clutching a thunderbolt because it's not just any eagle, it can catch thunder. Although sadly, it's not a sort of zigzag thunderbolt that you might find in a comic drawing and it looks more like a little log that it's landed on, but bon, it's a thunderbolt. There are other symbols of Napoleon's empire, which we're not going to get into now, but they include the chain of the Legion of Honour, the hand of justice and the scepter, and the crown and the imperial mantle. So, you know, he didn't skimp, he had plenty. So that brings us back to our question, did the king manage to eradicate Napoleon? Well, not exactly. And that's for different reasons. Now, arguably, Napoleon is with us in a very real sense every day. The Napoleonic Code of 1804 remains the basis of French law. He created the baccalaureate, the departments, the prefects, the investigating magistrates, lycées, the Bank de France and the Legion of Honour. And he's probably created more things, but they are still used today. Most of his symbols were taken away, but you still can find some signs of him in Paris. So if you do fancy seeing Napoleon in Paris, well, then here is a few that you can visit. So there are street names and metros which recall his great military campaigns or diplomatic triumph. And these include Austerlitz, Pyramid, Wagram, Iena, Rivoli and Tilsit. And there might even be some more. Of course, the Avenue de la Grande Armée, that's the Avenue of the Great Army, which was his army that he created, takes you right to the Arc de Triomphe, his arc, which he built to remember the Austerlitz um, victory, although he didn't live to see it finished. But on that arc, you will see a sculpture of him dressed as a Roman emperor. And he's, of course, on the top of the Vendôme column, the column itself made from cannons captured at the Austerlitz battle, and they tell the story of Austerlitz. There's also a Rue Bonaparte in the Six, but the place that you're going to find Napoleon himself, the most important Napoleon site, is, of course, uh, Les Invalides. 
and you can visit his tomb and that of his horse, I believe his skeleton is there, at the Army Museum, and that is where Napoleon lies today under a giant golden dome. Thank you so much for listening. That's it for today. Do be sure to subscribe because I never know when new episodes are coming out and tell a friend or leave a review. It makes me so happy and helps other people find the podcast. A shout out to Sarah, who's my latest patron. Thank you so much. And if you're a patron, there's new bonus episode content for you. And if you'd like to become a patron, then you can find a link in my show notes. Of course, there's also my website and Instagram for pictures. And as ever, an enormous thank you to Christopher who does the editing and sound design for my episodes. I appreciate it so much. Take care of yourselves and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.